take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. And uh, after today, we'll be uh, taking a, a break from our sermon series through the book of Genesis. And we'll come back at a later time. This is really a good place to take the break because the book of Genesis uh, is divided up into two main sections. Genesis 1 through 11 is more of a, a bird's eye view of mankind, kind of a, a global uh, view of humanity, kind of a wide angle view. And then from chapter 12 through the end of the book, the focus narrows down from the world at large to one particular family that God will use to save the world. And so Genesis chapter 11 is, is kind of the, in the book of Genesis at least, the, the, the climactic statement about mankind as a whole. And then moving on from 12 onward is God's uh, solution for all of that and for man's problems. Now, last week in Genesis 10, we considered the scattering of the peoples across the world as mankind clustered themselves together according to language and ethnicity. Uh, Today, we look at how and why that scattering, that division happened in the first place, you can say that chapter 11 is a, is a prequel to chapter 10. So let's read this together, and why don't you go ahead and stand with me, if you found your place, Genesis chapter 11, we stand in honor of the Word of God, we recognize that this is the most important thing that we can be reading, the most important word that we can be listening to. Genesis chapter 11, starting at the beginning of the chapter, we'll read on down through verse 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one language, or they one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray first of all that you would help me this morning, a very weak, very foolish ignorant preacher, I pray that you would help me to rightly divide the Word. It is a weighty thing to preach the Word of God, and I cannot do this without your help. My only hope is you. And Father, I also pray for my brothers and sisters who need help hearing the Word of God, who need help from the Holy Spirit to bring clarity to your word to us this morning. And so, both preacher and hearer need your help. 
And Father, we call on you right now to do that. And we look forward to your help. And we look forward to hearing from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Outside of the NFL, I'm not a very big sports watcher, except when it comes to the Olympics. Love the Olympics. Love the athleticism. Love the talent. Love the storylines of individual athletes. But what else is fascinating to me about the Olympics is that it's more than just a sporting spectacle. It really has become a philosophy. Uh, there's, a, there's a particular worldview that undergirds our modern Olympics, and, and that worldview is rooted in a kind of hope for peace through human unity and cooperation. The Olympic website states that Olympism... See, I didn't make this up. It's actually a term here. It's a philosophy. They say Olympism is a philosophy of life. It also goes on to say that the goal of the Olympic movement is to contribute to building a peaceful and better world. In the year 2000, the Olympics had a campaign called Celebrate Humanity. And uh, during that year, Nelson Mandela perhaps summed up Olympic optimism better than anyone else when he said, for 17 days, they are roommates. For 17 days, they are soulmates. For 22 seconds, they are competitors. 17 days is equals... 22 seconds as adversaries, what a wonderful world that would be. That's the hope I see in the Olympic Games. The philosophy of Olympism tugs at our hearts because it does capture, at least in part, things that all of us long for. We long for peace amongst men. We long for a world where divisions are healed. We long for the security and safety that comes through such unity. And we long for glory which is another aspect of the attraction of the Olympics, worldwide global glory and a type of salvation through human achievement and cooperation. That impulse for unity, for security, for salvation, for glory is at the heart of the issues dealt with here in Genesis chapter 11. Now sometimes the story of the Tower of Babel is puzzling to people. Because at one level, it, does not, it doesn't seem like anybody is doing anything wrong. This, this story was strange to me as a, as a child, uh, reading this for the, for the first time. Here is man. They're, they're living in unprecedented unity. They're working together. They're getting along. And God looks down on them, and he sees what's happening, and he totally ruins it and scatters the people abroad. It can, it can come across as very strange and even arbitrary on the part of God. What, what's, what's wrong with that, God? They're just building a tower. But upon closer inspection and, and further reflection, we see something very dark and destructive going on at Babel, and the problems God addresses at Babel are really problems that every one of us in this room are familiar with. And the, and the first problem that we see here is a plan for security. A plan for security. Text says that they are they settled in this one area in Shinar and they're building this city. They're building this tower. Now, why are they doing it? Verse 4 tells you why. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And so the people want to preserve and fortify themselves. They want to protect themselves from being dispersed over the face of the earth. And we might ask, well, what's the problem with that? What's the big deal? The problem is that it is rebellion against what God had wanted them to do. And this is best understood and best seen when Genesis 11 is read in light of the context of the whole book of Genesis. 
It's then that we see that earlier in Genesis in chapter 1 and repeated in chapter 9. We see God's mandate to mankind to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill, to disperse over all the earth. But mankind in Genesis 11 seeks to do the exact opposite. God's word to man is go and man's word to God is no. The people love a sense of security and safety more than they love God and His Word. They don't like the idea of being dispersed. And so they they trust in their ability to provide security for themselves in their way more than they trust God to give them what they need. Now, Now, we were already given a hint that rebellion is coming because last week in chapter 10, if you remember, we met a man by the name of Nimrod who appears to be the instigator of this Babylonian rebellion. Chapter 10, starting at verse 8, says that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. Nimrod was the world's first great conqueror and empire builder. He's the founder of Babel, also known as Babylon. And throughout the scriptures, Babylon becomes the prototypical symbol of man's defiant rebellion against God. And Nimrod's very name means we shall rebel, which conveys the idea that he's an instigator, a leader, a uniter of men in insurrection against God. God has given the people a word, a revelation that says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they said, let's build a tower lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They are explicitly rejecting God's command to fill the earth because they are fearful. The Jewish historian Josephus suggests that Nimrod was angry with God for drowning mankind in the flood in Genesis 7 and 8 and that to avenge the dead he would build a tower so high that should God choose to flood the world again the waters would not reach the top. Now, we don't know how accurate Josephus was in that, but we do know that the Bible is 100% accurate, and it is clear that these Babylonians are in open defiance against God. They mistrust God and His Word, being fearful of God's mandate to disperse. They want to remain together and unified and strong and secure, and so instead of finding security and refuge in God, the people instead reject God and look for security and self-preservation in a city. It's reminiscent, really, of of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, where where Cain was supposed to be a a wanderer roaming the earth. Cain goes against that, and in an attempt to uh, preserve himself and preserve his name, he founds that city in Genesis chapter 4. And so this theme now is coming back in chapter 11. These Babylonians are apparently suspicious of God's wisdom, and they are overconfident in their own. God tells them what is good, and the people reject that, and they determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. That also is a theme, a reoccurring theme throughout Genesis and the Scriptures, starting back in the Garden of Eden, just like Adam and Eve in the Garden do not heed the wisdom of God about what they need. Instead, out of suspicion, they reject it thinking they know better of what they needed than God. Now, whenever you do that, whenever you take something that God has said is good and you declare it to be evil, or when you take something that God has declared to be evil and you say that it is good, you have committed treason against God and you have sought to put yourself on His throne. Now, we've all been guilty of this. 
We all understand the tendency to be suspicious of God's word and to be overconfident in our own wisdom in making decisions, in interpreting reality, in navigating our lives. Either we've been there in the past or we're fighting against God right now. You look at the scriptures and what God says clashes with your own wisdom and clashes with what you feel is right. Well, I know the Bible says this, but... And you come to the decision that God is not trustworthy. So instead of building your life on the foundation of God's words, you find security in money, in possessions, in physical health, in entertainment, in relationships, in anything else outside of God and His Word. And we throw ourselves into shoring up these things, much like the people of Babel threw themselves into the building of a city. These Babylonians thought it was too dangerous, too uncomfortable, too risky to follow God. They like their own way better, and so they reject God's will and word for their lives. You know, most of the people that I have preached the gospel to who have rejected Christianity have rejected it not because they don't believe in God. And often it's not even because they reject the notion of Jesus Christ coming from God, dying on a cross, and rising again. Many people are okay with those propositions. Instead, very often, people reject Christ because they don't really believe that He is ultimately what they need. They don't really believe that His way is better than their own. It's not that they don't believe in Jesus as much as they don't believe Jesus. So often I've talked to people who have an interest in Christianity at first, but then their enthusiasm wanes when they hear Jesus say in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or when they hear Jesus say in Luke 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. From Babel until now, God is calling people to do the counterintuitive thing the thing that at first blush does not seem safe, to trade in all of the things we are putting our hope for security in and to exchange them for everything that God has for us and is calling us to do. And if you know the Word and the will of God, but you don't like what it says, you don't trust what it says, and you are digging in your heels in disobedience, you are acting like a foolish Babylonian. And that road will always turn out to be a disaster in the end, as we'll see shortly in this story. These Babylonians have a plan for security, but they are also making a grasp for glory. Now, if you look back at Genesis 1, you get a hint that the creation mandate for man to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, you get a hint that this is not just about boosting the population. Instead, it's closely bound together with who man actually is and why he is on the planet. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Man is not created as an end unto himself. Instead, man is created to glorify God by imaging God, by reflecting God, by demonstrating aspects of God's character... And Adam, the first man, is placed in the Garden of Eden, which is a, a proto-temple where the fullness of God's presence was experienced and enjoyed. 
And Genesis 1.27 says that God blessed the man and woman and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This creation mandate for man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is not merely about having lots of babies. Instead, the mandate is closely connected to the image of God in man. And so as man is filling the earth, imaging God's kingly dominion over creation, extending the garden temple throughout the earth, the glory of God through his image expressed in man is being spread throughout the earth. As man fills the earth, God's image fills the earth, and God's glory is to fill the earth. Isaiah 43, 7 God refers to his people as those whom I created for my glory. Numbers 14, 21, God says, All the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord. This is God's great desire, to have his glory fill the earth through man. But of course we know that Adam falls into sin and God's image in man is now broken and twisted. Not accurately reflecting God because of our sin. But nevertheless, if you move forward to Genesis chapter 9 we again see a reminder that man, nevertheless, is still an image-bearer, albeit an imperfect one, and still has a responsibility to glorify God. And Genesis 9 explicitly reminds us that man is made in the image of God. And right after that, the Genesis 1 mandate is repeated to Noah. In Genesis 9, Noah, who, like Adam, stands at the beginning of a new creation after the flood. And now he is to be fruitful and multiply, and his progeny is to fill the earth with his glory. And so, in Genesis 11, the mandate still stands. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, God says, go, and Genesis 11, man says, no. They say instead, in 11.4, let's make this tower, let's make a name for ourselves. God wants mankind to spread his glory and his name throughout the earth. But these Babylonians are concerned about their name, their reputation, their glory. They want to build this city and tower so that others will look back and be in awe at what they accomplished. And the problem of Babel is a problem man has had since the very beginning. Instead of finding our joy and our satisfaction in knowing God and in lifting his name up, we desire to have our name exalted and lifted up. We desire praise. We desire honor. We crave glory. Now, you may not want to be globally famous like the people at Babel did, but there are many of us in this room that can identify with the desire to be praised and honored, admired, and applauded. A desire for human approval and recognition that is so strong that our very happiness and our very identity hinges on that. And it becomes more important to us than anything else, even God. And this unhealthy craving for self-praise and glory can start very young. A recent study was done of middle school kids that revealed that young girls by a two-to-one margin would rather be more famous than more beautiful. Most would rather be the personal assistant to a famous celebrity than to a U.S. senator. A quarter of boys and girls believed that fame would make them happy and cause them to be more loved. 
And the majority of them thought dinner with a celebrity more appealing than dinner with Jesus Christ. Some of us post on Facebook, and our happiness rises and falls based on how much attention we get, how, much, how many likes we get. We post that selfie, and people better compliment how I look. Some of us, if we do something good, even ministry in the church, we want to be seen and admired in that. We want to be great or at least seen to be great. I don't care. I don't really care about being great as long as y'all think I'm great. That's the important thing. And this desire for greatness, to be at the center of it all, is not just obnoxious. It is satanic. And like all sins, it has its roots in the garden when the serpent entices Eve to exalt herself above God and be great in her own right. Serpent said to her, you will be wise and you will be like God. Cravings we have for greatness and self-glory are satanic. Because if I'm concerned about my name and my glory, if I'm, concerned, if I'm consumed over what other people think of me and my reputation, if I'm obsessed with those things, then consequently, what am I not obsessed with? What am I not consumed with? I'm not consumed with, I'm not obsessed over, I'm not concerned about God's name and God's glory. And God's reputation. I'm not concerned about what people think about God. That should be our driving passion and obsession. But if I become the center of my world, if it's all about how people esteem me and what people think about me, then who has become God in my world? This desire for glory and the approval of man is something we may tend to downplay and not see as, as, as serious as a sin as other things. But actually, hear me on this, okay? I, I bet you some of you have never thought about this. this. This sin is so destructive that it can actually send you to hell. Jesus says to his unbelieving opponents in John chapter 5, verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. That's one of the most terrifying verses in the whole Bible. Jesus is saying that the all-consuming desire for human approval above the approval of God actually prevents faith in Jesus, which therefore prevents you from being saved. As opposed to a desire for self-glory and exaltation, the attitude that you and I are to have is exemplified not by the people of Babel, but exemplified beautifully in John the Baptist. Do you remember the story in the Gospel of John? Multitudes have been coming out to hear John preach and be baptized by him, but in time, Jesus grows in popularity and in fame. And John's ministry begins to shrink. Less people are coming out to him. Instead, they're going over to Jesus. The recognition, the fame, the attention, the spotlight is moving off of John and being put on Jesus. And here would have been a temptation for John to get jealous, to have a wounded ego, to, to try to get the spotlight back on himself. But that's not his attitude. He, sa he says instead in John chapter 3, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That attitude is about as far away from Babel as you can get. The Babylonians' sense of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction is based on them being seen as great by others. John the Baptist's joy grows as people see Jesus as great. As Jesus is more and more put in the spotlight and he fades into the background. John the Baptist knew that he was on the planet to make Jesus look great. Not himself. You are on this planet to make Jesus look great. You are not on this planet so that people think you are awesome. You're not here for people to think that you are cool. Your main purpose is to make Jesus look really good. That's why we're here. We are to play a role in filling the earth with his glory, not ours. And our joy should grow as people see us less and less and see him more. So don't seek your own glory. That's a dangerous road. Seek God's. So we have in Babel a plan for security. We have a grasp for glory. We also have a scheme for salvation. The Tower of Babel was a place of worship. In all likelihood, it was a ziggurat, which is a gigantic pyramid-type structure with staircases and different levels. And you could climb all the way to the top of this building, and, and they were a part of pagan worship. There's, there's still ziggurat ruins today over in that part of the world. You can find pictures online when, when, uh, during the, uh, the latest Gulf War when our troops invaded and they were in Iraq and there's ziggurats there. It's pretty cool. The purpose of them isn't cool. The archaeology is cool. The name Babel means gate of God. It was believed that at the very top of the tower, you could have access to the spirit world, to divine knowledge, to divine power. Here would be the meeting place between God and man. Here man could tap into and manipulate the power of the gods and achieve salvation. At Babel, we find the foundation of false pagan religion. And as the people of Babel spread out from there, they took their paganism with them. And every false religion since Babel has been a futile scheme of salvation. A scheme based on the notion that we have the ability to bring salvation to ourselves and reach God. And so in our pride, we build a tower. We build a system of rules. We build structures and hoops to jump through uh, and, and to, to get to God, to achieve salvation. And, and then you do all of these things and you check off all of these boxes and, and maybe you'll get to heaven. Friends, that's Babylonian. That's an attempt to manipulate God. If I do X and Y, then God is obligated to do Z. If I go to church, if I give money to charity... If I try to be a nice person and help people, if I stop drinking, if I'm a faithful spouse, then God is obligated to do something for me, at least to get me to heaven, if not give me an awesome life right here. See, people construct these religions, 
these paths, these gods that seem in their eyes to bring salvation and enlightenment. But Scripture says there is a way that seems right to man. But in the end, it leads to death. Because all of our efforts of goodness and religiosity and pious deeds crumble in the end. Because God is holy and we are sinful. No matter what we do, we can't get around that reality. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to change that. And there's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves from God's judgment. The only thing that we can do to pay for our sins is suffer in hell forever for them. We find these Babylonians, once again, grossly overestimating themselves. And they are joined by billions today who arrogantly believe that they can save themselves based on their own righteousness. They may, they may say, well, I, I need God too, but salvation in these schemes is more like a tag team. It's you and God. Yeah, God may give you a little push over the finish line, but at the end of the day, it all hinges on your efforts. So we've spent time looking at man's problem. What about God's solution? How, how does God respond to the rebellion at Babel? And he responds in two ways. In one way, it's through an act of judgment. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's some divine humor here. There's some irony here. There's lots of irony all throughout this story. These Babylonians are building a tower. And how high did they want to build it? Verse 4. With its top in the heavens... And yet Moses describes God as having to come down to see it. Now this is figurative language. Moses, of course, believes in the omnipresence and omniscience of God. That God already knows all, that God's everywhere. But Moses describes God here as being so far above these little Babylonians who think that they are so great... But they are so beneath God that it's, it's as if God is saying, wait, what's that tiny speck down there? It, it, is that a tower or something? Uh, let me go check it out and then see exactly what that is. And so he's got to come down to actually take a look at it. That's humor. That's irony. Moses here, the author of Genesis, is taking a dig at these Babylonians who think they're so awesome and they're striving for glory and honor and self-salvation. We're going to reach the gods. And yet after all of their efforts, they are no closer to God than if they were still on the ground. And God confuses their languages and humiliates them. Defeat and humiliation is always the end goal for any who seek to exalt themselves above God. And again, that's more irony. These Babylonians wanted to have a great name. They wanted to be well-esteemed, well-thought-of, made to look great, and yet the exact opposite happens. They are made to be babbling fools. These are the mighty Babylonians, so desperate to be strong, so desperate to not be dispersed over the earth. They clung to a city, to a tower, to each other for life. Safety, security, they resisted the will of God with all of their might. But what happens at the end of it all? At the end of it all, the very thing that they feared the most comes to pass. More irony. The story begins with them in verse 4 saying, We shall rebel against God lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
But how does the story end? It ends with verse 8 saying, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. The irony at Babel is replayed by all of sinful humanity outside of God. When we cling to anything else outside of God for our security, for our happiness, for our fulfillment, those things will eventually be taken away from us. And at the end of it all, the thing that we fear the most will end up happening to us. That's exactly why Jesus says later on, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The person who is clinging and grasping and hanging on to anything else outside of the one true God in an attempt to find life and fulfillment will not only in the end lose those things he was hanging on to, he will lose life itself. Now this principle is chillingly illustrated in Jesus' parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Life is truly found, security is truly found, preservation is truly found, and releasing all the other things that we are treasuring and trusting to save us, and instead to treasure and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, even in the midst of God's judgment, we also see in God's actions at Babel a display of grace. We see grace manifested in a, in a couple of different ways. It's, it's interesting what uh, God says going back to verse 6. He says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Some people look at that, and they're like, Oh, oh well, God must feel threatened by this. Is God scared of these, of these people, of their potential, of of, of what they can do. That's not what's going on at all. This is, this is an act of, uh, of grace. God's not concerned about himself. He doesn't feel threatened. He's doing this as an act of grace for the people. He, re- he recognizes that, that really the last thing that people need in their sinful rebellion is to be united. He sees a world divided better than a world united in regards to sinful humanity. Here, in separating the peoples and bringing division to the peoples, God is restraining man's sin. He's restraining the wickedness of man. It reminds me uh, somewhat of uh, earlier in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, and then God banishes them from the garden, and he prevents them from eating of the tree of life so that they won't live forever. And that also is an act of mercy. That's an act of grace. God is restraining wickedness and evil in man. He does not want Adam and Eve to live in a, in a, in a, in a sinful, condemned state forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So we see God doing something here similar at Babel. The scattering of the peoples at Babel wasn't God just being a killjoy. Instead, it was God being a savior as Paul preached to the pagans in Athens in Acts 17 that 
God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In contrast to Babel, God is seeking a people who are totally united in the purpose of seeking, extolling, elevating, praising, honoring, and giving glory to God and not themselves. But now, how can this happen if the people are now divided and scattered? If God wants a a unified people who are unified in glorifying Him, how's that going to happen now? Now that everyone's divided by language, by culture, by ethnic barriers. Turn to Acts 2 in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 is God's response to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, the people reject God, and God scatters them and confuses their languages so that they cannot understand one another. And from the scattering of Babel comes all of the languages and tribes and nations of the world. They're divided and dispersed, and their man-centered unity is broken. But what do we see in Acts 2? Acts 2, verse 5, says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. There was, a, there was a feast going on. There was a, a, a religious holiday going on. And you've got Jews, you've got people from, from different corners of the world now coming. And they're all descending upon Jerusalem. People who speak different languages. People who have different cultures. And here they are in one place, in one time. And what does God do? What happens next? The apostles, if you read on, the apostles, they preach the gospel that offers the hope of reconciliation to God for wicked rebels who have sought life and security and lesser things, who have chased the glory that comes from man instead of God's glory, who have despised, who have devised their own schemes of works righteousness and futile attempts to earn salvation. And when the apostles preach Jesus Christ to them, look what happens in verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together... And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? It says you've got not just Jews there from different parts of the world, but again, the text says that there's these uh, uh, proselytes as well, people of other ethnic backgrounds uh, coming as well, and everybody can understand the word that's being preached. What does it mean? And what it means is that God is reversing the division and the confusion at Babel. And the words that are being spoken at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 are not, come and let us make a name for ourselves, Rather, the words being declared are, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the miracle of all these different people, groups, hearing and understanding the gospel as if they all spoke the same language is a sign from God that the division that was caused by sin and the disruption of the unity at Babel, all of that is being turned back in Jesus Christ, being reversed in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the church. This is the kind of unity that God is building Not through the Olympics, or through the United Nations, or through pagan one world religion, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that tells us that though man-made religion is about futilely trying to climb up to God through a tower, through good works, through our own feeble efforts, the gospel, conversely, is all about trusting in the God who has come down to meet us. While the Babylonians tried to construct a gate of God, Jesus Christ says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. The gospel tells the story not of arrogant Babylonians grasping for their own glory, but of one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The chasm between man and God could not be bridged by a tower or by our good works, but only by a cross. Because the cross is the place where Jesus, as a substitute for sinners, paid the price for the sin of rebels like us. And so now there's a choice before us all. There are only two ways to live. You can, like the Babylonians, bank all of your hopes on your strength to save you. Or you can rest in the work that Jesus Christ has done on behalf of sinners, which is the message of the gospel. A gospel that addresses the issues at Babel. It addresses the problem of salvation as God provides an atonement for our sins through Jesus Christ. It addresses our desire for unity as God takes the scattered nations and unites them in Jesus Christ. It addresses our need for security as the gospel brings us to a God who will never leave us or forsake us. But the gospel also deals with glory. The Babylonians were right in that they knew that we were made for glory. But they were wrong in where they thought that glory was to be found. That the glory that we are made for and that brings us true joy is God's glory. God's purpose for man, as revealed in Genesis, has still not changed. Though Adam failed in fulfilling the creation mandate to extend the garden temple and, the, and, and, and God's glory worldwide, though Noah himself failed as he fell into sin... Though the people of Babel fail as they blatantly resist God's mandate, we see in Jesus Christ a superior Adam, the last Adam, the one who will finally and fully fulfill the creation mandate. Jesus, like Adam and like Noah, stands at the dawn of a new creation. But he does what Adam and Noah could not fully do. And we see that the Genesis 1 commission 
to be fruitful and multiply is fully expressed in the Matthew 28 commission. As Jesus turns to his followers and gives them a mandate that says, Go into all of the world, making disciples of the nations, of the peoples where the fruitfulness and the multiplication is not seen as much in new babies born, but in the spread of the gospel, where people hear and believe and are born again, and the broken image of God in man is restored, and believers are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. An image that is meant to fill the earth. The Genesis 1 mandate is finally fulfilled through Christ in the Acts 1 mandate, Where Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And to what end? So that the whole earth would be full of the glory of God. And so the Acts chapter 2 Babylonian reversal continues today as the gospel goes forth and makes new believers and brings unity to white people and black people and Asian people and Mixed people and all groups, unity amongst the peoples and reconciliation to God. And the consummation of that reversal will be fully realized in the next age. Zephaniah 3.9 looks forward to a day to come where God says, in Zephaniah again 3.9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. How great a day that will be when you have a people totally united and joined together, gathered around the throne of God, not seeking their own glory, but instead enjoying His. Where the nations that were scattered in Genesis are all coming together in the book of Revelation, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious day that will be. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, thank you that through the gospel you answer the problems that plague us, the desire for salvation and the desire to enjoy a glory and the desire for united fellowship. All of those things are ultimately fulfilled and bound up in the gospel and what God is doing through Christ. And I thank you so much for that. Father, thank you that though we were foolish Babylonians, going our own way, we're we're not superior to the people in Genesis 11. We have been guilty of the same kinds of sins. And yet you sent your Son to redeem us anyway, to redeem a people for yourself. Father, is there anyone in this room that has not yet been brought into the family, united to God and united with other believers. I wonder if there is someone here this morning in that situation. Oh God, if there is, bring them in. Bring them in to the family. Bring them in to the household of God. And let them experience and enjoy everything you have for them 
in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.